If you would turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 16. It's a great joy to preach this psalm. It's just one of my absolute favorites. Many, many times in my, my private devotions with the Lord, this psalm has, has spoken to me, has ministered to me. And I love the reading of God's Word. As you know well, this is not merely a moment of religious exercise. It's a moment of divine transformation. Uh, just now as we're, we're singing, I'm just praying, Lord, power and light, Lord, power and light. Let the power of your word and the illumination of it spread over this room. That can only happen when the word is proclaimed and the spirit is present. So let's, let's receive the power and the light of the Lord as we read these words. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. My wife who is here and wanted to be here with me to greet you as well. My wife does not like old elevators, especially the old elevators that you sometimes find in old parking garages. Uh, You know the kind that I mean. You park your car and you come to the elevator and you wonder if in the decades past when they built this parking garage, they found the elevator at that point at a discount bargain bin uh, where they sell elevators. And it's concerning To get on, it doesn't seem modern in any stretch. It seems like there's someone cranking the wheel somewhere back there to get you up and down. Well, she doesn't like those elevators because, as I've heard, at some point in her life she got stuck in an elevator. And so now, especially these old parking garage elevators, seem uncertain. And you know what I mean? You you step onto them and they sort of quiver a little bit. And that's not comforting. And it doesn't seem like it's been air freshened in any recent decade. And that's unsettling. And there's writing on the walls. And that's very unsettling. It's just generally unsettling. It's a, it's a shaky experience. Well, you know what? Life in this world 
would be just a series of getting on parking garage elevators if it weren't for the Lord. That would be our spiritual experience, wouldn't it? Just one parking garage, rickety old elevator to the next. Over and over and over again. Close your eyes, clench a little bit, and hope you make it. I mean, that would be life if it were not for the Lord. Suspended in midair, totally surrounded by circumstances you cannot control, waiting and hoping that this isn't the time that the plunge takes place. That's life without the Lord. This psalm is about David's declaration that that is not his experience. That his experience is in a very different kind of refuge. David is declaring, aside from our ordinary experience in the rickety parking garage elevator of life, I have found a refuge in the Lord my God. I am surrounded by His loving care. And in line after line, David is just extolling his delight in this refuge. He's saying, God has plucked me out of the shakiness of this world and my own vulnerability, and He has surrounded me with His own covenant love and affection, and I love being here. I delight in it. My whole being rejoices in the security of it. And He impresses that on us because I think He wants us to delight in the care of the Lord as well. That's the goal of this psalm, that we would delight in the care of the Lord, the loving care of the Lord. Now, he talks about God's care with three primary characteristics, and they overlap as psalms do, but I think we can kind of organize them this way. First, the supremacy of God's care, and then the provision of God's care, and then the preservation of God's care. Supremacy, provision, and preservation. Three overlapping aspects of this care that David is so excited about and wants to impress upon us. So first is the supremacy. The supremacy of God's care. You notice he begins with a prayer, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is a declaration to the Lord that David, in his experience of seeing his own vulnerability and the needs that he faces, and if you know David's life, uh, this psalm could have been referencing any number of terrible circumstances. I mean, David faced more shaky circumstances than anybody's ever faced in this room, certainly. Shakiness was a part of his everyday life in terms of his physical experiences, relational experiences. And so he declares, Lord, I want you to be my refuge. You preserve me. I want to be inside of your loving protection. I take refuge inside of you. And then he says, I say to the Lord in verse 2, and you recognize that capital L-O-R-D, that's the covenant name of God. So he's referencing God's promise to preserve his people with covenant affection and love, to keep his promises, to hold them close to himself. And he's saying, I say to you, the covenant, loving, caring, gripping God, that you are my sovereign, you might say. Lord, my master, I have no good apart from you. What's David declaring? He's saying, look, when I look at, at every other kind of refuge and anything outside of you, there is nothing good. All the good that I have, it comes because I am found in you. I am bound up with you, David says. 
And I, I want to be there. Preserve me, God. You are my refuge. I am, I am tied up to you, and I have no good apart from you. Stepping out of you, there's nothing but shakiness and destruction and impending doom. But in you, there is good and security and hope. You're, you're supreme over any other kind of refuge. He, he looks around at the options of refuge, and he says, worthless, worthless, hopeless, worthless, but in God. In God is all my good. I have no good apart from you, Lord. All the good that I have is found inside of you. Then in verse 3, he says that his, his goodness pours over from focusing on the Lord to include those to include those who also trust God. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He's saying, I'm so delighted in the refuge of the Lord, I can't help but be delighted in those who also trust in God. I'm so happy to find that there are others who also find refuge in my God. It's so good to have company in this place where we are trusting the Lord together. You might imagine a a scenario, say, in the Midwest where there's a tornado uh, ravaging the countryside and somehow you find your way to a refuge, a place of absolute security and safety, and then you find that someone else is there too, and and you can imagine rejoicing. Oh, isn't it a a blessing to find you here? I'm so glad you're here too. That's what David is saying about the Lord. He's saying, I'm so glad we're here together. I'm so glad. Isn't this a wonderful refuge? I, I delight in the fact that you also are here in this place of refuge that you also trust in the Lord, that you also have rejected all other shaky places of confidence and you love being here. I love that about you, saints in the land. The people who trust in God, David says, they are, they are all my delight. I delight in them. You want to notice the joyful language that begins to filter through all of David's expressions here. Then he compares in verse 4 the sorrows of those who run after another God. You want to remember, David is in this circumstance where he's surrounded by cultural idolatry. The lands around, they would have little figures that represented what they believed to be powerful deities. And they would go and offer sacrifices to this little representative idol in the hopes that that so-called deity would provide for them and protect them and give them children and crops and keep their enemies away and, and love them in a particular way. He's surrounded by that kind of thinking. Well, if, if your crops don't grow, then offer a sacrifice to this God. And if this doesn't work, then offer a sacrifice to this God. You need them to watch over you. And David is saying, no, I want nothing to do with that. You know what's going to happen to those people who trust other kinds of God? Sorrow. That's like stepping into a rickety old elevator and saying, now this is real security. No, he says. No, sorrow, I will not. You know what? I will not even take their names on my lips. I'm not even going to mutter the name of a false god as a sort of backup in case God forgets me. I'm not even going to mutter their name. I'm not even going to mention this false hope and false trust. You know why? Because I've found the refuge that everybody should want. Everybody should get in on this. i got nothing to do with those false refuges over there. No interest in them. I will not take their names on my lips. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I won't do any of that because I don't trust them. I have the supreme refuge right here. My God is all the refuge I need. 
That is what David is declaring. He's supreme. He's better than. And we need to hear this, especially because our idols are more subtle in this age. I mean, I, don't, I would doubt that you have many animal sacrifices in your neighborhood. Maybe you do. Uh, when I lived here, we didn't do that. I mean, they, they, there may not be, you know, block party with the animal. You know, let's pray for, you know, uh, what would you pray for here? A little more rain. I don't know. Let's, let's pray for the crops to grow or something. No, no, we don't have that. But what, what do we have? All kinds of practical ways that distract us from our vulnerability apart from the Lord. Good things. Social media and entertainment and food and drink. Blessings like houses and financial security and a, a nicer car and relational hangout time. Good things that sometimes distract us from the fact that ultimately our refuge is in the Lord. You know, it's a little bit like trusting those things. Trusting those things is like padding your rickety parking garage elevator in in the hopes that the fall will be a bit more comfortable in the end. It's like the good life can be comfortable and this protects me from the sense of my soul being shaky and vulnerable. And David is saying, no, 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 I, I, I will not trust anything else. I won't trust even good things as a substitute for God. I won't do it. And I certainly won't trust evil things. Illicit pleasures and, and dangers of self-indulgence. No, I, I, I will not trust those as a refuge when I experience the fear that is a normal part of living in a human body in a fallen world. I, I will not trust those things. My trust is in the Lord. I will not give in to those things. My hope is in the Lord. I will not even mutter the names of those things that are substitutes for God in this culture because my hope is in the Lord. He is my refuge. I'm clinging to Him. Inside Him is where I'm safe. Not in the haze of good but distracting things that the culture offers as a substitute for God. Now, very important for us to appreciate. David delights in the Lord because he depends on the Lord. If we are not dependent on the Lord, we will see our delight in the Lord decline. If you've noticed a decline in your delight in the Lord, one major reason could be that on an ongoing daily basis, your dependence is found in something else. And even the most well-decorated parking garage elevator cannot produce as much joy as security in the Lord. You can wallpaper it over and gild the floor and spray some hand sanitizer on it, but it's not ultimately going to be the same as trusting in God. It's the discipline of dependence on the Lord that ultimately produces delight in the Lord's protection. To David exalts in the supremacy of his God. He also exalts in the provision of his God. Keep looking down there at verse 5. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Now, this is a banqueting analogy. You might think of the very best part of a banquet, the chosen portion, David says. His chosen portion. It's not the questionable casserole that nobody wants to pick too much at. It's the really good thing that everybody wants more of at the end, and it's gone. 
That, that, that's the part David's referring to. He's saying, look, God is that thing that's the best thing on the table. His, his provision is better than anything else, David says. And he's my cup, which is to say, he's the one that provides for me the refreshment I need. Where, where do I find refreshment of soul? In God, David says. And he changes the analogy, he uses a geographical analogy. He says, the Lord holds my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So God is David's lot holder. You remember when the Israelites came into the land and they were assigned portions of land. And David almost pictures himself, you know, blindfolded and led by God to a portion of land. You wonder, wow, well, what's, the, what's the portion of land going to look like that God gave me? You know, when I was a kid, we watched this movie called Sergeant York. And, and at one point, Sergeant York was a farmer and, and he had upper land, which was all full of rocks and terrible. He spent half his time clearing rocks off the land. And in the bottom land that he would gaze longingly over the valley, it was all rich earth and, and easy and the grain just sprouted almost without effort. And he longed to be down there in the bottom, have some good bottom land. He's up in the upper land moving boulders around. You can imagine David being brought by the Lord. Oh, what kind of land? Is it going to be the upper land or the lower land? And God takes the blindfold off and, and look at this rich, luscious valley David, full and well-watered. I've given you a delightful land. So David's using this metaphor, I think, to say what it's like trusting in God. He's saying God's like the one who, holding your lot, He gives you the very best land, the very delightful land. I think this is a metaphor. David did not always have delightful circumstances in his life. You can read about that in 1 and 2 Samuel. He didn't always have delightful circumstances. But what he's saying is, because of God's goodness and faithfulness, my experience of him is that he always gives me what is good. I delight in what he has given me. And when you get to the New Testament, the metaphor changes from a focus on physical provision to spiritual inheritance. So that Christians are told, God is your inheritance. You are like the priests of old who didn't get a parcel of land. They got a parcel of God. God is your inheritance. God is your peace that you get to enjoy. And so with David, we can proclaim our inheritance. It is delightful. His provision is, is better than I could have imagined because I get to encounter him. I get to draw near to him. I get to approach him. I get to know of his love. I get to know of his security and his peace and his refreshing kindness towards me and his good portion. What's David saying? He's saying, how many metaphors can I use to tell you how good it is to be in the care of the Lord? Delight yourself, David says, in the care of the Lord, in the provision of God's care. It's, it's supreme over everything. And His provision is delightful. Not just what He provides uh, for us, what He provides in directing us. Notice down there, He moves again in His provision. He says, God, God doesn't just give us what we need in Him the way an inheritance is given. He also gives us direction for our path through life. Notice that in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. 
what, what David is saying is God meets every need, every spiritual need that an individual has. He meets every spiritual need. What, what do you need? Is your, is your need a, a sense of, of longing for satisfaction? God provides that the way a good portion is provided. Is your need a sense of, of spiritual parchedness and, and I, I'm thirsty? God is your cup. Is, is your need a sense of, of deprivation? I need God to provide for me. Well, God is like an inheritance that you can delight in. Is your need for direction? Which way to go? Do you feel like you're in a night in the scripture, especially in the Psalms, the, the night is used as a metaphor for darkness when you can't see the future and you're uncertain whether attacks are coming and you don't know what's going to happen next. And you're waiting for the dawn that just seems to wait forever over the watches of the night. And so when David says that in the night his heart instructs him and that God is his God, he's saying even in the, the times when I'm not sure about the future, I'm not certain where it's going to lead. I'm, I'm not, it's like a nighttime experience. I, I can't see ahead. I, I can't see out into the horizon. He's saying, right then God guides you. Right then God leads you. When you feel least able to see into the future, God is guiding. God is leading. God will instruct you. It's important that we clarify that this is not guidance in terms of whether you get a burger or a burrito, okay? This is not decisions about Ford or Toyota. This is not some kind of charismatic, you know, ultra wave something in the air and, you know, do I get Coke or Sprite? That, that is not what this is, okay? This is talking about God will lead you in how you can obey Him in every circumstance. He will provide clarity for how you can continue to honor him even when life seems like night closing in around you. He'll he'll guide you in the way that is honorable and godly even when everything else seems uncertain. There will be a clear path for trusting and obeying the Lord. You'll never be lost for direction in how to follow God regardless of what else is happening in your life. Isn't that good news? What does David say is the result of all of this provision? The result of this provision of God is that David has set the Lord, again, notice the Lord being used throughout this L-O-R-D, the covenant God, God's promising, loving, securing nature. I have set that God always before me, David says. And here's the result. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken, David says. And isn't that true? If God is at your right hand, what could possibly shake your soul? What can shake your soul when God is at your right hand? Are are you experiencing marriage tensions and difficulties? Difficult to know how to grow in unity and affection? Okay, that's shaking. But God is at your right hand to lead you and guide you and be your satisfaction and your peace in the midst of that? Are you experiencing uncertainty about a particular child and don't know how to guide or lead them? And you don't know what faithfulness as a parent looks like in this moment. Well, God is at your right hand. God will guide you and lead you. Maybe there's financial insecurity. There's uncertainty at work. What's the future going to hold? How do I obey God and provide for my family in the midst of this financial difficulty? God is at your right hand. God will lead you. God will guide you. Are you experiencing health difficulties? How do do I handle this news? This devastating news. And even the doctors don't know what's going to happen. I have a a friend right now for for months and months. The doctors could not tell her what the answer was. What does she do right then? Well, God is at her right hand. 
Does it feel like it's nighttime? Yes, but God will instruct you. What's David saying? It's delightful inside this place of God's protection. I take refuge here. All other refuges, they're worthless. They're false promises. They don't deliver. Sorrows will be multiplied if you seek hope there, but they will be great joy for the one who trusts in the provision of God. He'll provide for your satisfaction. He'll provide for your direction. He'll provide at any point of need that you have. God is the provision. Deeply true for every Christian. For every Christian, the Lord Himself is our inheritance. We, we sing a song I'm sure you've sung it at some point here too, where it says, all I have, all I want, all I need is you. David is also so sure of this that he believes it indefinitely into the future. This isn't a temporary snapshot of soul. It's a permanent declaration of the future. So the third category of care he references here is God's preservation. He's supreme. He provides, but this isn't just temporary. And isn't that different than everything else? How many times have you said, man, we're in a great place right now. The, The job is great. The family's great. The house is great. And then only such a short time later, two years later, the job has gone, the roof is leaking, and the child is wandering. So temporary provision is not the same thing as permanent preservation. But David says that he is sure of permanent preservation, so much so that the result, and he starts here in verse 9, that his heart is glad and his whole being rejoices. Look there at verse 8. I want to linger just for a second on this, uh, this verse. Verse 9, rather. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. (laughs) Isn't there a difference between technically trusting in God and delighting in the trustworthiness of God? Don't you know the difference? I mean, you know the difference, honestly. It's not like it would ever come out of your mouth, God is faithless. You You wouldn't say that, I don't think. God doesn't care about me. God, I, I deny that God is good. You, you wouldn't say that with your mouth, but it's also probably true if you're honest that your, your heart couldn't be described maybe as delighting in the Lord. My heart is glad, David says. I'm so sure about God's protection indefinitely that my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. This is a standard of trusting God that I think is uncomfortable for us and necessary for us to apply. The Lord has called us to delight, to rejoice in His care. Not merely to affirm it or assent to it or acknowledge that that's what the Bible says, but to rejoice in it. I'm sure of God's provision. I'm sure of God's care. I'm rejoicing in it. This is what Paul says In Philippians 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Why does he say that? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about 
anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests, whatever it is, be made known to God. And what will happen? The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know, but I think maybe this is one of the Psalms Paul may be meditating on before he wrote that part of Scripture. He's saying you, 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 you don't just need to endure. It, it's not just duty-driven endurance. It's delight. It's joy. And this verse, I, mean, I think it's meant not just to tell us about David. To, it's, it's meant to impart something to you. And, and I, I am trusting by the power of the Holy Spirit that this word would do that for you this morning. That, that it would impart what David is experiencing. That your hearts would be glad, that your whole beings would rejoice, because if you believe in Jesus Christ and this same God, this God is your preservation and your protection, the supreme place of refuge for you. You are within the care of this same loving God. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, this morning, His joy would be imparted into your soul because you exist inside of His care. David says, His flesh even dwells secure because God will not abandon him to Sheol, the place of the dead, or He will not let His Holy One see corruption. Now, thankfully, we don't have to guess what that somewhat ambiguous End of verse 10 means because Peter provides the divine interpretation of this psalm. So we can read that in Acts 2. It's great when the New Testament does this because it saves you a lot of work. Acts 2, 29-33. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he should set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was, here's the phrase, not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So God's preserving power is seen in a temporary way in David's life, but Peter says it was seen in its fullness in the resurrection of Jesus so that the ultimate anointed one was preserved from corruption. And that's the ultimate meaning of verse 10. Here's why that matters for us. When you step into an elevator, whatever happens to that elevator is going to happen to you. You know what I mean? There's, there's no, you know, I know the whole nonsense about if you jump, you won't die. I mean, come on. You don't jump that good. What happens to the elevator is going to happen to you, okay? When we as Christians step into the Lord Jesus Christ, what happens to him happens to us also. And the Lord Jesus was preserved from the corruption of death because he had defeated the curse of it by dying for our sins. It wasn't like God said, well, we just can't leave Jesus in the grave. That would really be a bummer. Let's, let's, let's raise him up. No, it was more profound than that. Because the curse of sin was broken, 
God vindicated that victory by raising Jesus out of the grave, and so the Holy One did not see corruption. It was a demonstration of the faithful fulfillment of God's preserving grace towards His people that their representative was lifted out of the grave. Here's what this means for us. You are in the place that even death cannot finally reach. And in that place, your preservation will last eternally. So when David says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, you know what he's saying? Even death cannot reach me inside of this place of God's covenant love. And the Christian who believes in Jesus who died for their sins and raised to glory can say the same thing. Even death and even the curse of it and even the pains of it ultimately cannot reach into this place of security because I have found the place of ultimate refuge. At Christian, you have too. David says, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there's that language again, right here next to you, within this safe place, there is fullness of joy. Joy better than any sorrow. Joy better than any uncertainty because there's a place that you have been placed in. The covenant protection of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. That place, that location is a reason for overwhelming and enduring and doubt-crushing joy. When my children are little, and we do the story of Noah, we, we talk about how people were sinning against God, and they all had angry faces, and you know, God was going to destroy mankind because of their sinfulness. But God had Noah build a big boat, and then, since the time they were little, I, I always add this phrase, it was a special place to save them. They built a big boat, and they know what to say. What was it? It was a special place to save them. Because I want them to get something of a metaphor that the ark is in Scripture. It was a special place to save them. You know what happened outside the ark? Plunging to condemnation and ruin. But inside the ark, it was a special place to save them. You know what happens outside of Jesus Christ and this covenant care of God? Condemnation and ruin. The final plunge. We're suspended in our sin and God's wrath and the slender thread of time snaps and we go to our condemnation rightfully deserved for having rejected the only safe place of refuge. We laughed at the ark and the waters came and we were destroyed. And that is how all of human history unfolds. One human death at a time. But there is an exception there is an exception there, bobbing on the water. There is a special place to save them. And there, in all of human history, looking up, there is one where there is a special place to save them. There is one. And in Him, there is pleasures forevermore and joy everlasting because He holds the path of life. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, you are in the special place to save you. While the storm rages, condemnation unfolds one death at a time. But you, you are in the refuge that cannot be shaken. 
You are in the place where there is joy everlasting. At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. This is good news. This is joy to sustain us. This is the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Listen, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you've got a list of things to do, there's joy because you're in the refuge of God. When you encounter some deceitfulness in one of your children that you suddenly are surprised by an area of sin in their heart, there is joy because around you is the care of God, a special place to save you, and you can find joy in that eternally in Him. When, when you realize that something's leaking or dripping or broken or cracked or squeaking, what, what, what happens? You have around you a special place to save you. You have relational challenges and marital challenges and uncertain futures and depression and doubt and insecurity and the temptation of a bunch of creaking old parking garage elevator promises of this life. You can reject them because you already exist in the special place to save you. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You make known to me the path of life. And you know what, Lord? In your presence, you know what I have? Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy and pleasures. How long? Forevermore. What's David trying to say? Amplified by the coming of the Lord Jesus and the revelation of His special place to save us. What's he trying to say? Delight. In the care of your Lord. In that place, there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray specifically for anyone that has experienced some kind of recent personal sadness. Lord, maybe medical news that was discouraging. I pray, Lord, that the joy of your protection would be their strength. Lord, I pray for those who, in an ongoing way, battle the the relentless, tempting thoughts of, of depression and sadness. Lord, would you lift them up above those waters and remind them that they are in you. Bring them joy forevermore and and right now. Well, thank you for plucking us out of our plunge to destruction, placing us inside of your care. Keep our vision clear. Help us to see your arms holding us. Give us joy. Give this church joy. In Jesus' name, amen.